Bienvenidos and welcome to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm your host, Vanessa Bohm, with Nina Serrano and Julieta Kusnir. Tonight's program brings us a mezcla of news, music, art, and culture con un sabor latino. Julieta Kusnir brings us a first in a series of conversations about restorative justice, a growing movement to respond to the injustices of our criminal system that disproportionately affects communities of color. Nina Serrano checks in with the Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador for a post-election update and more information about the work to address the humanitarian crisis of unaccompanied minors migrating from Central America and who are currently being detained in growing numbers by the U.S. immigration system. We'll also hear about an exciting photo exhibition, and listeners will have another chance to win tickets to the upcoming Mexiam Festival at the Yerber Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco. Stay tuned for all that and more. But first, we begin with Noticias with Vilma V. This is Vilma V with Noticias Sin Fronteras, news headlines without borders from America Latina for the week ending July 20th. Brazil, it's back to serious business for Brazil after successfully hosting La Copa Mundial for the world soccer community on July 16th. After the Games, it hosted the sixth meeting of the leaders of the BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, in a historic economic summit in Fortaleza, Brazil. At the conference, the leaders agreed on a deal to create a billion-dollar, quote, new development bank, end quote, that in time may rival the World Bank and the IMF in terms of global economic influence. The headquarters for the new bank will be in Shanghai, China, and its first president will hail from India. Mexico. As part of its ongoing obesity prevention campaign that saw an increase in taxes for certain high-calorie foods and drinks within the last year, the Mexican government, led by Enrique Peña Nieto, is now restricting television advertising for the same type of foods. The ban on advertising for high-fat foods and sugary soft drinks will be in effect from 2.30 to 7.30 p.m. on weekdays and for 12 hours on weekends beginning at 7.30 a.m. The ban went into effect as soon as the law was signed. Also, beginning in 2015, Mexican food manufacturers will be required to label the sugar and fat content on all their food and drink products. Uruguay Last week, the government of Uruguay, led by President José Mujica, offered to accept and repatriate six detainees held by the U.S. in Guantanamo Bay, four Syrians, one Tunisian, and one Palestinian. All six prisoners have been approved for transfer out of Guantanamo Bay for over four years, but have been mired in bureaucratic and political paralysis compounded by the recent uproar over the prisoner exchange of Sergeant Bo Bergdahl from the U.S. war in Afghanistan. State Department spoke Person Ian Moss stated, quote, The United States is grateful to our partner Uruguay for this significant humanitarian gesture and appreciates the Uruguayan government's generous assistance as the U.S. continues its efforts to close the detention facility at Guantanamo Bay, end quote. There are 143 prisoners in Guantanamo, 72 of them have been recommended for transfer. Honduras. At the Conference on Unaccompanied Child Migrants, held last week in Tegucigalpa, Honduras, Honduran President Juan Hernández urged the U.S. to assist the region's leaders in fighting the crime and violence, which forms the impetus for the children to flee. He stated, quote, One has to recognize that our countries can't do it alone. We need help from the United States, from Mexico, because this is everyone's problem, end quote. The country's foreign minister, Mireya Agüero, argued that efforts to increase security at the U.S.-Mexico border were not working and that the money could be better spent in Central America. She stated, quote, It's much more practical for the United States to launch a mini-Marshall Plan, as they did after World War II, to create opportunities and really get to the root of the problem in Central American countries that is fueling migration, end quote. The majority of the children arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border come from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, and their numbers have increased 1,000% since 2009. 
Bolivia. In other child news, the government of Bolivia, led by President Evo Morales, has signed into law a new policy which allows for children as young as 10 years old to work as long as they are, quote, self-employed and attend school, end quote. The formal age limit for employment remains 14, but exceptions can be made for those who meet specific legal criteria that include making a voluntary decision to work, consent from a parent or guardian, or permission from a public ombudsman. The exception to the age limit for employment is part of a comprehensive policy by Bolivian lawmakers to eradicate extreme poverty in the country by 2025. Vice President Alvaro Garcia stated, quote, It would have been easier to pass a law in line with international conventions, but it would not be enforced because Bolivia's reality has other needs and characteristics, end quote. According to the United Nations Children's Fund, more than half a million children already work to supplement their family's income in Bolivia. This has been a summary of some of the latest news headlines from America Latina. I'm Vilma V for Noticias Sin Fronteras and La Raza Chronicles. If you have a news item that you would like to share or have us track, email us at larasachronicles at kpfa.org. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Veronica de la Raza, and we're kicking off an important series on restorative justice. We have in the studio with us Malachi, who will be hosting and facilitating this conversation. He has been working in the field of restorative justice for many years. Now, Malachi, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I thank you, Julieta. Thank you, Malachi. So why don't you give our listeners a little background into your work in the restorative justice field and introduce us to your guest, who has also been working in this field for many years. I'm the peer community liaison for Westside Community Services. And we are bringing a restorative justice approach to the program. And I started in the restorative justice field as a participant, actually, in a group called the Victim Offender Education Group, which is under the Insight Prison Project. And we have here today Sonia Shaw, who is the advocacy director of the Insight Prison Project. And she's here to tell us about what restorative justice is and what it looks like in practice. So hello, Sonia. Hello, Malachi. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what restorative justice is? Absolutely. So first thing is that our criminal justice system is based on a system of retribution. So it's retributive justice, which basically is based on punishment. It's based on retribution. It's based on the concept of an eye for an eye. Restorative justice is hopefully trying to do something very different, moving from a justice that is based on punishment to a justice that's based on healing. So the notion right now in our criminal justice system is that when a crime happens, we basically lock people up and we throw away the key and we don't really care why they did what they did. Nobody asks them why they did what they did. Nobody really cares what happens to the victims, how they feel, what they need, how they've been traumatized. It's basically a system that gets kind of outsourced to the state to figure out. And um, that's our criminal justice system. So what restorative justice is is basically saying, well, when a crime happens, it's actually a violation to the community and it's a violation to the victim, direct victim, and it's a violation to all of the other people that were involved in in somehow uh, seeing the crime happen. And so it's about bringing healing and justice back into the community and saying when a harm happens, it happens to the community. And it's the community's sort of prerogative and responsibility to heal that harm. It's also very victim-centered as opposed to the criminal justice system. So the the notion is that since victims are never asked in the criminal justice system what they need, how are they harmed, and what are some obligations that maybe the person who's committed the crime has, restorative justice is really bringing it into the hands of the victims and saying, what do you need? How are you harmed? And what, what do you think are the responsibilities that follow? So Sonia, can you tell us a little bit about Maybe a story or someone you may know, a victim or a crime survivor, which we like to call them, who has found healing and restorative justice. And what did that look like? It's funny that you asked that question. I want to back up a little bit and say something else about restorative justice that I think is really important and then tell a story of a crime survivor. So restorative justice is not a new process. From time immemorial, people in various different types of indigenous traditions have been sitting together in circle 
in India, in Africa, in Celtic traditions and First Nation traditions and Maori traditions to solve and heal harm. What the West kind of, you know, caught on to about 40 years ago was basically looking at our broken criminal justice system and, and, and actually borrowing from ancient traditions and saying, oh, there's a different way that we can do this. And so was birthed restorative justice in the modern context, really in response to the criminal justice system. And from that, there are so many different ways that restorative justice takes form in terms of practices. So you have things like what you mentioned, the Victim Offender Education Group, which is restorative justice inside prisons. You have Victim Offender Dialogues, which are straight dialogues between a victim and an offender of a crime. You have peacemaking circles. You have healing circles. You have um, restorative community conferencing, and we can talk about all that. But at the center of it are the survivors and the victims. And so a story that I could tell you or sort of the feeling that I have heard from a lot of survivors is that being a part of restorative justice is actually really what justice feels like. You know, having been through such a trauma of losing a loved one, of being physically attacked. And for example, somebody that's never has been physically attacked, let's say had a brain injury, um, has never been able to meet the person who committed that crime against them, doesn't even know who they are. To go through a process like in our program in the Victim Offender Education Group where they can talk to people that have committed similar harms and ask some questions that they will never get a chance to ask. Did you know me? Why did you attack me? What were you thinking? A lot of times I hear survivors ask, what did you do afterwards? Did you go, you know, party? Did you go gambling? Did you go back to the scene of the crime? You know, are you, did you still look for that person? Do you care what happened to their family? What, you know, what was your thought process? And for many survivors in their own healing journey, that's a really, it's a very empowering and significant conversation to kind of understand the impact of a huge trauma that has happened to them. Thank you. Once again, this is Sonia Shaw, Advocacy Director of the Insight Prison Project, who also facilitate victim offender education groups. How does restorative justice work inside a prison under the victim offender education group? And how does the men who you know on the inside, inside of San Quentin, benefit from this restorative justice practice? Uh, the victim offender education group was started in 2004 at San Quentin by a woman named Rochelle Edwards. And there was a small group of men that really legitimized the program and decided to go through it. And uh, the arc of the work that we do, it's, it takes the form of a curriculum, but it's really a set of practices and processes that are based in restorative justice and healing trauma. And so the two main components are really about accountability and really understanding victim impact and the impact on victims and being accountable. And what does that look like? What does it look like to really own that you might have committed an act of harm and take responsibility for it and also then be able to separate that that was an action and that that's not who you are as a person? Because a lot of men inside of prison and women inside of prison walk around with a, a lot of guilt and shame around a crime they might have committed and when it's so deep, that guilt and shame, it's, it's very difficult for them to separate that they're not bad people, just committed a bad act. So we do something where we first go through a process where we talk about a crime impact statement. People really talk about the share the details of their crime with each other. We do it through a group process, and it's very intense. And then we spend the next 30 to 40 weeks really looking at the self as a victim, the men and women inside who've experienced trauma in their lives. And so it's our program is really based on the philosophy that hurt people hurt people. So the notion is that if you've had a lot of trauma in your life as a child due to family, due to environment, due to racism, due to schools, you know, you just lived in a traumatic environment, you didn't have an opportunity for healing, there are no resources around you, the likelihood that you'll turn inward and hurt yourself which is where all the substance abuse comes from, or turn outward and hurt other people, is high. And there's a basic theory and connection between trauma and violence. So trauma turned inward is all of that that substance abuse, which 70% of people who are incarcerated are substance were substance abusers, and that trauma turned outwards is the violence on other people. And so we do a lot of work to unpack that and what's the cause of the cause of the cause of the cause of your own traumas that weren't processed or healed, that led to the way you expressed or didn't express feelings, that led to certain actions or behaviors that just got compounded and compounded and compounded till one day 
you know, it led to committing a violent crime. We call it sort of connecting the dots of your life that led to a moment of a really significant harm. And then we end our program in a very restorative justice process. We talk, we do a lot of work around impact on victims and cultivating empathy. And we end it with a surrogate dialogue between victims of crime and people who are inside of committed harm. And we will bring in victims of crime that have experienced the similar crimes to the ones that have been committed. So if someone's committed a murder, we might bring in a mother whose son was murdered. If someone was attacking folks, we might bring in people who have been attacked. And there's a very deep exchange, a very deep dialogue exchange. Thank you, Sonia. Yeah, I find it beneficial as a participant of the Victim Offender Education Group. When I was on the inside, it definitely helped my life out. It helped me gain insight into my past trauma and helped me find healing in my life and gave me the ability to move forward in this process because, yeah, I had a lot of guilt and shame in my life. And every time that I went to the program, it was always intense. I was always sweaty and nervous, and I had to step into that fire. So um, by stepping into that fire, it definitely helped me to get to the point where I'm at today and it basically point in the direction of my life as I stay committed to restorative justice. Once again, we have Sonia Shaw, Advocacy Director of the Insight Prison Project, so, Sonia, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and what brought you to restorative justice? I guess I would say that I feel like restorative justice is the most contemporary, exciting, cutting-edge, nonviolent social movement to hit sort of the Western, you know, United States. And that excites me for many reasons, but I guess, you know, to be more personal, two things. One is that Uh, My ancestry is South Asian, and my parents both went through the British independence movement. All of my family members did, and many of them participated in a really active nonviolent social movement in India. My uncle was a very strong disciple um, of Gandhi and spent years in his ashram in Gujarat. And, you know, those things have influence on you. You know, when you grow up sort of hearing stories um, about that participation and about what does nonviolence really mean? How do you, how does it take shape? How does it take form? It, it just, you know, it's in your cultural context. It's in your family context. It was in mine. Um, and so that really influenced me, and it always I always gravitated towards that. So for my own personal, you know, kind of ancestral reasons, um, it felt when I learned about restorative justice, when I when I got myself more involved in it, it just felt right. The other reason, there are two reasons. Um, I think that mass incarceration is the biggest social problem. As if we compared it to colonization in India, I think it's like that. I think it's the biggest social problem in the United States. I feel like, you know, we have built a prison industry and we have this amazing opportunity to take it down. And a great example of that is just to understand, just to look at California itself. Before 1980, there were nine prisons and two camps. From 1852 to 1980, there were only nine prisons and two camps built in California. From the 1980s to now, there's something like 33 prisons and 30 camps and nine community correctional facilities. So we built this industry in California. It was really for for socioeconomic reasons where land that was rural um, that wasn't being used and devalued was bought by the government and then sold uh, to create prison industries and to stimulate economy. And then in the shadow of racism, you know, as well, It was acceptable. Somehow we're going to build more prisons and this is the norm. But we need to ask the question of why is that the norm? Why did we do that? Why did we build them and how do we take them down? And so I feel like it's everybody's problem. You know, mass incarceration is everybody's problem. So that's the second reason. And then for really my own personal reasons is having experienced trauma in my own childhood and spent a lot of time kind of thinking about it and healing from it. And it just... I really understand the sense of how a trauma can turn into creating a harm on myself or creating a harm on other people. And so it just resonates. So we just heard the voice of Sonia Shah, who works at the Insight Prison Project. She's been involved in the restorative justice field for many years now. And we also have in the studio Malachi, who has been facilitating this conversation. Malachi, why don't you share with us what brought you to restorative justice and the role it's played in your life? Um, yeah, sure. So when I was 15 years old, I committed a very, very violent crime, and I went to prison. I was sentenced to 15 years to life, and during that process, 
um, as I continued to do a little bit amount of time and I eventually got to a prison called San Quentin. And inside of San Quentin, there you have the Victim Offender Education Group. And I decided to join the program. And going through that program, I learned about restorative justice and mainly about my life and what what happened to me when I was younger and how that affected me and how that led me to act out in different ways. And eventually how I got to the point to where I could commit a very violent crime and all those causative factors that led me to that violent crime that I take full responsibility for. And um, I learned about a lot of different things, about distorted thinking, about victim awareness, and about the actual impact that I had on my community and um, my family and the victim's family and many other different things. And it was very emotional. And once I saw that, I knew that I couldn't do it anymore. And the biggest thing that I learned through the process is this thing called empathy. And because of that, it made me very, very, it made me pretty much value human life in a way that I never had when I was younger. And it touched me so much that even though I, I'm out here now, this restorative justice stayed with me and I'm dedicated to the program and I've done many things in the community and, um, and it's gonna live with me forever. And so Malachi, tell us about the work you're doing now in San Francisco around restorative justice. Just recently been hired by Westside Community Services, which is a child and adolescent service, which they offer case management, therapy, and different things for youth. And they brought me in basically to be the peer community liaison and do a lot of outreach work and to go out to the schools and to youth organizations and do presentations and talk to them and bring them inside of the program. And we bring in a restorative justice element to it in that we will offer healing circles to youth and young adults. So so can I add one thing to what you just said? Um, because we've been focusing a lot of restorative justice that happens in a prison or is about violent crime. But what Malachi just said about healing circles in the community is also very much a restorative justice practice. So the sense, again, that restorative justice is about healing harms that have happened in a community. So that say, for example, we've got the prison work, we've got work that happens in the community, and we have work that happens in the school. So say, for example, there's, you know, uh, some violence that happens in a school and some a kid gets shot. You have all of the stuff that's going around, the kid getting shot and, get, you know, getting taken away and whatever's happening. And then you have all the effects of the impact of that on every single person in that school. And so um, what often happens in a restorative justice context in a community is people will go out, trained facilitators will go out to that school, like first responders, and have healing circles where they get together with the students and they talk about what they're feeling, what the impact was, what they need, how do they deal with it. And it, hopefully it's doing some of that processing, that healing right there in the moment in the community. And it's hopefully de-escalating the potential for violence that could come out of a, a situation like that. So that's another way that restorative justice works as sort of like a peacemaking circle in a community. And can you give examples of scenarios beyond the violence in a school? Does restorative justice work for folks that maybe it, it doesn't involve a violent act? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the thing is that since it's come out of the criminal justice system and, you know, it has this kind of, you know, flavor of when there's been violence. But it actually took a lot of people in the community and schools to say, you know, it's not always about violence. It's just about conflict. You know, it's about two people having a conflict and saying, ouch, you hurt my feelings. And so the restorative justice practice is a really, really simple process of kind of saying, oh, Malachi and I, let's say we, we're talking, we're friends, and we have a fight. You know, like I'm, I'm hurting him, he's hurting me, and we need to figure out a way to resolve that conflict and actually acknowledge that maybe we hurt each other a little bit and then say why. And so it's a really, really simple process of like passing around a talking piece and giving each other time to speak and listen I mean, and, and kind of acknowledge, you know, the, the way in which we might be misunderstanding each other or hurting each other. So I do it with my family members. I do it with my friends. You know, I'm one of my best friends, Sujatha Balaga. We've sat down and she's a pioneer in the field of restorative justice. We've, we've had moments where we had a big fight and we sat down with a talking piece and we passed the talking piece back and forth and we did our little restorative justice practice. There are ways in which, you know, we've done sort of celebration circles, you know, just as friends and used restorative justice practices to say, 
just a form out of circle process, basically, to say, let's really create this ritual, a kind of a celebration ritual, healing ritual around something and just done it. So anybody can do it. Folks in the community just pick up a talking piece and learn how to do it. It's not it's not brain science. And it's, it's a very simple, beautiful format for healing harm, for talking through conflict and for, for communicating with each other. That's the voice of Sonia Shaw. We also are hearing from Malachi. They're both dedicating their lives to the field of restorative justice, working hard to address the way that conflict is dealt with in our society and find alternatives. This is Cronicas de la Raza. Malachi, what else should people know or what else do you think is important to address in this introduction? Yeah, I think restorative justice is actually for every human being on the planet. (laughs) And just to speak to that, I would say in this world where conflict is natural and where harm is, it seems to be something that mostly everyone experienced, right? And I would say that restorative justice can be for someone who has lost a loved one. Restorative justice can be for someone who has said something that hurt someone and wants to seek to repair that relationship. Or restorative justice can be for someone who has not done anything and not been present and who have abandoned someone or someone who has been abandoned. It comes in many forms. So in a restorative justice practice, there can be circles that give people a space to to talk about these issues and let it out and have a dialogue that may that healing may can come from. So restorative justice is actually for you too as well. Once again we have Sonia Shaw, advocacy director of the Insight Prison Project. So what do you think about the range of restorative justice? Yeah, and we were talking about this a little before, you know, really letting people know that restorative justice is a set of practices that can be used from the basics of the interpersonal relationship of a hurt or a harm. We use the word harm a lot instead of crime, you know, because crime is about justice. So a hurt or a harm that was created between two people from schools, from prisons, from in the community to like really massive national projects. So the biggest the biggest national project is was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa was an entire restorative justice process basically of hearing about harms that people had committed, hearing the impact of that from survivors of crime um, and having people take accountability. What's What's really at the base of it in all of it is that there's a sense that you're, you want to talk, you want to communicate, and there's, there's some accountability in it, and you're willing to kind of work through it. And, you know, since we've talked about community and prisons, I'll just piggyback a little bit and just say something about schools because it's probably where some of the most exciting work is happening is in the schools in which – and it started very organically and on the ground and grassroots where people who are – you know, school workers would go in and teach kids and teachers how to do restorative justice, which is basically how do you work through conflict with students when it happens? How do you have students work through conflict with each other? How do, how do students and teachers do it? How do teachers and teachers do it? And in all of the studies in Pennsylvania, in Colorado, in Minnesota, and in right here in Oakland, the evidence that restorative justice works is that after a year or two, of doing restorative practices in school, the suspension rate will drop by 50 to 87 percent. And there's usually a a humongous reduction of physical fighting on campus. And so those studies are really consistent. And, you know, the movement in the schools is really to stop what we call the school to prison pipeline, because the feeling a lot of schools that are, you know, quote unquote, inner city schools is it's sort of like kids of color will be disciplined more frequently and much more frequently, and, and as they're disciplined more frequently, they're more likely to go into an incarcerated setting, so stopping that pipeline. And it's also become so successful that a lot of school boards have adopted restorative justice as the way to do discipline. So the sense is that if a kid gets into trouble, he actually ask for restorative justice and say, I, you can't just suspend me. You know, we need, we need to do a circle. Is there any research that shows the effectiveness of restorative justice? So I mentioned that there were some studies done on the schools where the Henderson Center for Social Justice did a study of a West Oakland school, Cole Middle School, that was really started by Rita Alfred, and it showed that 87% drop in suspension and zero physical fighting. Same studies in Pennsylvania and Minnesota. There's a, a really good document called Restorative Justice, the Evidence. And then there's there are a lot of other organizations that are trying to now more methodically document the effects of restorative justice. Do you know any organizations or any information that can help our listeners who may live outside of the Bay Area 
are outside of the state where they can go find out more about restorative justice or there? Yeah, so let me start with the Bay Area ones, and then I think I know one or two national ones. Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth, National Council for Crime and Delinquency, our organization, Insight Prison Project, Community Works, Restorative Justice Training Institute. These are all Bay Area local because it's a big movement here. They all have beautiful websites. There's programs in Fresno. There's programs in Sonoma. And then there's some, there's a big sort of online clearinghouse. I think it's called Restorative Justice Online. And literally, if you put Restorative Justice Online into a Google framework, it'll come up and it has a kind of a clearinghouse of different articles and kind of information about what's happening across the United States and also globally. Where can listeners find out more about the Insight Prison Project? For Insight Prison Project, um, you can just go to our website, which is www.insight, I-N-S-I-G-H-T, prisonproject.org. So the Insight Prison Project was founded in 1997, you know, with one class of prisoners doing some work at San Quentin. And really, our all of our work falls under the modalities of trauma healing or restorative justice. And most recently... What we're trying to do is create some programs that really support the leadership of incarcerated and formerly incarcerated men and women. And so it started with this one class. And now, for example, the Vogue program, the Victim Offender Education Group program, is in 12 different state prisons, three county jails, a handful of reentry centers. And there's a group in Boston who's about to launch a Victim Offender Education Group in Norfolk Prison and roll it out in Massachusetts. We have violence prevention kind of courses, transformation courses, and we have a very large uh, collaboration with an organization called Prison Yoga Project, um, which is started by a man named James Fox. And he, under the umbrella of Insight Prison Project, has spread doing yoga in prisons to about 50 different prisons nationally and internationally. And so we do a lot of work on the inside, again, around trauma healing, around restorative justice, and increasingly... Uh, supporting the leadership of men and women who were incarcerated or f- and formerly incarcerated and also now trying to bridge more into doing work in reentry as more and men and women get out and in getting involved in sort of policy-oriented work around ending mass incarceration. So once again, we have Sonia Shaw of the Insight Prison Project. So Sonia, if one of our listeners or someone out in society wants to learn about restorative justice and may wants to take a a restorative justice training through the Insight Prison Project, how do they go about doing that? Well, we offer a couple of trainings every year. And again, it's on our website. Um, We usually offer them in May and October for facilitation. Can you tell us about how does it feel to be someone from the outside going inside as a facilitator? And how do you process when you leave an institution like San Quentin? Yeah, that's a great question, Malachi. You know, I would say, number one, is that there's this misperception that people come in from the outside to, quote unquote, help. Um, and it's it's a terrible misperception because there's kind of racism in there and colonialism in there. And, you know, I, I know more than you. And the reality is that as an outsider coming inside, I learn so much. Um, I feel like everybody inside is is teaching me as much as I might be offering some skills or some process that I know how to do. And so what our groups feel like is are very much these really beautiful dialogues that are really about learning each other, trusting each other, and getting to the roots of what's happened in people's lives. And just to be a witness and a person in process of someone sharing the worst thing that's ever happened to them. What what a gift and privilege it is to sit there and hold that space for them to be able to express it. What a gift it is to be able to hear it. And so I really honestly feel oftentimes just like really lucky that I get to do what I do. And every every time somebody's processing something deep about themselves and you know, you can see a little shift or somebody breaks open or something changes or there's a lightness It teaches me something about my own life. You know, it teaches me about times when I'm rigid or angry or what I haven't worked through or, you know, we'll be doing an exercise and I'm sometimes my mind will wander into like, oh, man, I really need to do that exercise, too. I haven't really processed through that. So I learn a lot. And there's so much sort of skill in terms of doing facilitation and really holding that kind of space for people. And doing this work is hard. And so, you know, one of the things a, a good a, somebody in a training recently said is a, a therapist, and I, I would say a facilitator, can only take a group as far 
as the therapist has gone. So when we translate that to facilitation is that a facilitator can only take a group as far as they've gone themselves. And so I, I really like that, and I'm taking that very seriously about how far I need to go in my own work in order to be able to sit in a group so that we can all take ourselves there. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. We have in the studio with uh, Sonia Shaw, who works with the Insight Prison Project. She's also faculty at CIIS. We have also with us Malachi, who has been facilitating this conversation. Malachi, can you give our listeners some information on how to connect to the work you're doing at your organization? Well, you can go online at www.westside-health.org which is our organization under the West Side Community Services. You can also go to our website at the North Oakland Restorative Justice Council to learn more about what's going on in North Oakland. So this has been the first in a series of conversations that we're going to have around restorative justice. Malachi, can you give our listeners a really quick preview of some of the other areas that you want to explore in the very vast and growing field of restorative justice? Uh, Yes, we're going to explore more about restorative justice in schools as it is growing and developing uh, all across the country. Um, We're going to talk about victim offenders as far as victim offenders dialogues. We're going to have some people who have been harmed through violence come on the show and speak to how restorative justice has helped them. We're also going to have some people who have committed certain harms and come and talk about how restorative justice has helped them. And also some work that's being done in the community around gentrification, around some certain community violence and, uh, and conflict resolution that's going on in the community. That's the voice of Malachi. He'll be facilitating these conversations as someone who has been working in the field. Thank you both so much for joining us. We really look forward to continuing this important conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm your host, Vanessa Bohm, and I'm joined on the line by Ricardo Gallardo. He's the Artistic Director of Tambuco Percussion Ensemble, who will be part of the Mexiam Festival at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco. Thank you, Ricardo, for joining us this evening. Thank you, and good evening. Well, we've been telling our listeners about the upcoming Mexiam Festival that will be taking place between July 31st and August 3rd. It will be the first festival of its kind that will be including performing arts, culture, and conversations and ideas from Mexico. Your group, Tambuco, will be one of the groups performing with Hector Infanzón on Friday, August 1st. Can you tell us a little about the music that our listeners can expect from your show? Yes. Well, um, Tambuco is a quartet based in Mexico City, and we um, devote our work to the performance of pieces uh, written exclusively for percussion instruments. This means that the stage is covered with all sorts of instruments because percussion instruments are a big family of instruments and very diverse. Um, We collaborate closely with composers from all nationalities and they write music for Tambuco and we premiere these pieces in concerts all over the place. We travel a lot with Tambuco and we believe very much in collaboration with composers or with other musicians or some bigger institutions like theater and intercultural activities like with visual arts, etc. So that's the, basically what we do. And we will present a program mostly of pieces written 
for Tambuco by composers from Mexico or Latin American composers. It's the first time that Tambuco plays in San Francisco, although we have played uh, quite a lot in the States and we have collaborated with composers from the States. Uh, it's the first time that we present a concert in San Francisco. Well, I know our listeners are in for a treat. We've checked out videos online, and you all use interesting instruments and objects. We are also very excited to be offering a pair of tickets to our listeners tonight for your performance, which will be taking place on Friday, August 1st at 8 p.m. at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. That's right. The repertoire for percussion is always very exciting, you know, because audiences are thrilled and they are very curious because some of the sounds that these instruments produce come at the same time from many places uh, around the world. And the composers that Tambuco works with use these sounds, but with a new language, you know, uh, transforming this ancient tradition of sounds with new languages, with new ideas. We um, are very happy to offer this concert our San Francisco debut, and we hope that uh, you are interested and come to the performance. You can go online to tambuco.org or check YouTube videos. There's a lot of our work there. And yes, come and and call the station to get your two comps. That's right. So we'll be giving away a pair of tickets to the performance of Tambuco and Hector Infanzon that will be taking place as part of the Mexiam Festival at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco on Friday, August 1st at 8 p.m. The number to call is 510-848-4425. Mucha suerte. Thank you so much, Ricardo, for joining us this evening. We look forward to seeing you on August 1st. Yes, I'm looking forward to seeing you um, there. And I hope that you can go to the concert. You won't regret it because it's a very special music experience. And hope to see you there. It's uh, going to be a great pleasure for us to play in San Francisco. You've just heard the music of Tambuco, who will be performing as part of the Mex I Am Festival at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco. For more information on the festival, go to ybca.org. Raza Chronicles, Cornicas de la Raza. We have in the studio today two people from the committee in solidarity with the people of El Salvador, more commonly known as CISPES. One is Carl Kramer. Bienvenidos, Carl Kramer. My pleasure to be here, Nina. And ours to have you, and Jessica Fisher. So wonderful to be back on the show. Great to have you both. When we last talked to you, you had just returned from El Salvador during the period of the elections. What can you tell us about the elections, Carl? Salvador Sanchez Seren was the candidate for the FMLN, won the presidential elections, and since then he's been advancing a program of uh, helping on um, strengthening the rights of workers, advancing programs to expanding health care and meeting the needs of the people and uh, with expanded social programs, and signed uh, papers to join Petro Caribe, which is uh, 
It provides for uh, Venezuelan oil at uh, on terms that the uh, they can pay in an installment plan, and that frees up a huge amount of money for for paying for social programs. Oh, interesting. And Jessica, you were one of the election observers in El Salvador. What can you tell us about that? It was an incredibly amazing experience, especially for uh, my family that fled El Salvador during the Civil War to see a former guerrilla combatant become the president and receive more votes than any other candidate in the history of uh, our country. It was an absolutely exciting time. And do you feel that he is putting a program into practice, the very one that he offered when he asked people to vote for him? He has. There's a lot of obstacles in the way. Uh, The struggle continues, but there's a lot of really great programs going on that really can benefit sort of the, the people that need it the most. So in the news, we've been hearing a lot about the children at the border, immigrant children, some accompanied and some unaccompanied minors, and they've been very badly treated, as we know. What can you tell us about that? Well, I have sort of a personal story that's close to my heart about my cousin coming to the United States by himself uh, when he was 10 years old, and uh, my aunt hired a coyote who continued to ask for more and more money, and Coyote ended up abandoning him at the Texas border. And my mother, six months pregnant with me, went to go find him and look for him and found him wandering around with blisters on his feet and, um, you know, helped to get him back to California safely. And now this news of, you know, tens of thousands of, of young migrants really, it's very upsetting. And the media coverage we've been getting has all been framed around people being upset about their tax dollars being used for undocumented immigrants. And really, these children are, you know, if they could have a good life and if their parents could stay in their countries, they would do that. And there are a lot of reasons why they feel the need to to migrate here. Tell me a little more about this cousin. This was quite a while ago. So he's had a chance to uh, develop in his life and reflect on that experience. What do you feel were the impacts of that on him? I think that was a really traumatic experience for him, uh, one that's definitely helped to shape the person that he is. He, like many young migrants, became involved in gang activity and, and didn't do so well and actually ended up being deported back to El Salvador, which is what these young migrants are facing. There is a period of time that they get when they get caught by ICE. They don't deport them immediately. However, they do give their families, if they can find their families, a court date for their deportation. So it definitely continues to be a great issue. And also that I've recently come to hear that coyotes have started letting kids be caught by ICE. Their goal is not necessarily to get them to their families safely because they tell the families that, oh, once you're caught by ICE, they'll be detained for a little bit, everything will work itself out, you'll get to stay here, and a lot of times that's not the case. However, they can get their final payment even if the kids are being detained. So there's a lot of kids being abandoned sort of on purpose. I have a friend who visited some detention centers in Arizona and spoke to me about one young three-year-old, very cute little girl who was abandoned by coyotes upon ICE's arrival. And it just breaks my heart because there's no way to tell who she is, who she belongs to, where she came from. And, you know, this is just kind of one story that, you know, reflects the larger picture. So, Carl, what do you think is the larger picture? Well, what we in CISPIS are addressing are the neoliberal policies that are being pushed out of Washington that keeps a a large proportion of the people of Central America impoverished. For example, in the last elections, we saw the U.S. State Department and uh, U.S. Ambassador Mari Carmen Aponte particularly pushing the Salvadoran government to uh, form public-private partnerships with uh, transnational corporations to run things like the seaports, the airport, and we're actually pushing to have a lot of the uh, public services like health care, education, roads, water, 
privatized in uh, these public-private partnerships that uh, ultimately the National Legislative Assembly did pass the form of this called the Public-Private Partnership Law, but the U.S. ambassador kept pushing to have that law expanded because of a lot of the campaigning we did here in the U.S. They backed down from some of the the serious push to have uh, the health care services, education, water turned over to private companies. But they continue to push through the elections. Uh, they've been holding back a uh, $277 million development uh, grant from the U.S., all in the efforts to get the Salvadoran government to uh, turn over more of its market to transnational corporations. The latest campaign that uh, we feel that was uh, we were a part of the successful resolution at this point was when the U.S. Ambassador Mari Carmen Aponte came back to say that the Salvadoran government would have to get rid of its family agricultural program. This was a program that's helped raise 300,000 families out of poverty by paying some farmers to produce beans and corn, then the government buys that beans and corn and distributes to other farmers. A U.S. trade representative was saying, well, this is a violation of the of the Central America Free Trade Agreement and that uh, it's not opening up their market, you know, to uh, competition from U.S.-based companies. Read Monsanto which has in the past has held the, the monopoly over the seed productions in El Salvador through uh, now it has two subsidiaries in El Salvador. Well, those two subsidiaries didn't win the contracts under this family agricultural program. So they've been pushing to have El Salvador scrap the program. Again, you know, that having a, a program that is providing food security for the nation and uh, providing a livelihood for uh, nearly a third of a million farmers in El Salvador. So it's these kind of policies that the U.S. has been pushing that has uh, made it so difficult for people to, you know, to have self-determination and provide uh, for their own uh, families and to rise up out of poverty. And um, this is what we're fighting here in the U.S. to keep building and and putting pressure on. uh, And if I could just say how we did it, it was uh, here we collected more than a thousand petition signatures. And then we had the uh, people that in El Salvador that delivered those petition signatures directly to the U.S. Embassy. We also got uh, 16 congressional representatives to sign on to a letter to Secretary of State John Kerry and 50 leading international environmental trade and food sovereignty organizations signing on to a letter. That's quite an accomplishment. And do you feel that the new FMLM government has stood fast in the face of this pressure to allow Monsanto to mess with their food and seed crops and uh, in this effort for privatization? Yes. On um, on July 5th, the El Salvador's Minister of Agriculture, Orestes Ortez, assured that uh, the nation, that the ministry would continue to support local agricultural producers. And he said, you know, that he acknowledged that it was an extraordinary social outcome beyond the uh, the economic benefits. And also thanked uh, the support that he received from the North American people and uh, said, you know, that was a very, very important advance that they've been able to to keep the program and not allow Monsanto to undermine this successful program. So with that success in mind, what are some of your other upcoming events? CISPUS is going to have its national convention in the Bay Area and always historically a part of our national conventions and having a prominent movement leader from El Salvador be at the convention. And we will have a public event on Friday, August 29th, the opening night of the convention. And that event will be in the evening at the Women's Building. And uh, invite everyone to come to that. And also uh, in September, we're going to have our community movie nights continuing every third Thursday. So that will be September 
18th. The doors open at 6 p.m. and the movies start at 6.30. Generally, we have some refreshments, some popcorn and stuff, and we always like to have some lively discussion afterwards, and we really encourage uh, anyone who's around to come come by. It's um, on 16th Street between South Venice and Mission. So if y'all are around, you should definitely come out. <laughs> and what kind of films are these? They're all focused on El Salvador. I think our next one is going to be Hidden in Plain Sight, which focuses on the SOA. And uh, my mother's actually featured in that documentary, which oh. is pretty cool. And we just saw uh, this last Thursday, Return to El Salvador, which sort of focused on uh, transition to the FMLN government. So they're all really great documentaries and films. And for more information, where can people go? People can call our office, 415 503 0789. We have um, a website for the national organization, www.cispes.org. And they can also check out our Facebook. We have a Bay Area chapter Facebook. And can always shoot us an email for more information, bayarea at cispes.org. Well, muchas gracias, Carl Kramer and Jessica Fisher of CSPES, the Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador. And for more information, you can go to www.cspes.org. That's C-I-S-P-E-S dot org. Thank you, Nina. Gracias, Nina. Un placer. been listening to La Raza Chronicles Cronicas de la Raza. Remember to like us on Facebook for show information, updates, and links to previous shows. And don't forget to tune in next week for more noticias, arte, música y cultura con un sabor latino. Hasta la próxima.